Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And we have a very, very eclectic mix of stuff in this particular episode. At the cinema, we have the very, very art house film from Thai director Apichatpong Wirasethakun in Memoria. And technically a cinematic film, but available mostly through Sky Cinema, we also have the feel-good British independent movie, Save the Cinema. On streaming platforms, we have the German film Next Door, with actor Daniel Brühl making his directorial debut, and also the Oscar shortlisted documentary, which is available through the National Geographic channel, the harrowing COVID documentary, The First Wave. And also on Netflix, we have the mildly Oscar baity film about grief, The Starling. So, yeah, a very mixed bag of stuff in this odd mid January lull. Well, I suppose it's only a lull because I have absolutely no interest in watching the remake of Scream. But anyway, that's what I have for you in this particular episode. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Memoria is the latest film from Thai director Apichatpong Wirasethakun, who is perhaps the most famous working Thai director if you ask the average person on the street or the average cinephile on the street to name a Thai director, they would probably come up with Apichatpong Wirasethakun. Largely because he won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010 for his film Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. One of the more unexpected and one of the strangest films ever to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes but I guess that's what happens when you have Tim Burton as the president of the jury that year, and Benicio Del Toro was on the jury that year. So, yes, they were always going to pick something strange, and by God did they. Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, is a very, very strange film, in which a dead woman materialises out of nowhere and is just accepted, A Sasquatch-like beast comes out of the Thai jungle, sits down at the dinner table, and it is revealed it is this dead woman's son, who has transformed into a Sasquatch-like beast after having sex with a monkey demon in the forest. And then halfway through the film, for absolutely no reason, we are suddenly transported back in time where a princess is carried in a palanquin into the middle of the jungle and proceeds to have sex with a catfish. These are the things which happen in Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives, and 
yeah, it's a very, very art house approach. But because of that Palm Door win, Apichatpong Wurusethakun has become one of the bastions of art house cinema, particularly what has become known as slow cinema. And with that in mind, it was kind of expected that this film would end up on the long list for International Film Oscar this year, particularly after Apichatpongwira Sathakun won the jury prize at Cannes this year for this film, Memoria. Weirdly, despite the fact that Apichatpongwira Sathakun is Thai, he made this film in Colombia and it stars Tilda Swinton. So Colombia submitted it to the International Film Competition, but it did not make the long list which I was actually very, very grateful for, because I am not a fan of this kind of abstract, dreamlike cinema that Wurisatha Kuhn puts out, and I wasn't really looking forward to seeing it. But, with a limited slate of films being released this particular week, somehow this very, very arthouse film, Memoria, ended up being played one showing a day at my local Odeon multiplex, albeit in the tiny, tiny screen they've got under their stairs. But still, it was playing at the Odeon multiplex, and since I can just walk into the Odeon multiplex with my Limitless card, I thought, why the hell not? I can watch it for free. I may as well. So I ended up watching Memoria, the very, very strange film, Memoria in which Tilda Swinson plays a British woman living and working in Colombia. She is visiting her sister, who is in hospital after a very mysterious illness. She seems to be hunting for orchids, it's never specifically explained what she's doing, but there's hints about that. And she is a stranger in a strange land. She freely admits she doesn't speak very good Spanish, yet she is living in Colombia. And at the opening of the film, Tilda Swinton is sleeping when she is awoken by a very strange thumping noise. And she becomes obsessed with finding out what this thumping noise is why nobody else can hear it, what it physically sounds like. I mean, she goes to a audio engineer and tries to figure out what this sound is, what it sounds like. And she becomes obsessed with finding out what this noise is. But what does it actually mean? Does it mean anything? Does this film mean anything? It's very much up for the audience to decide. Surrealism is a term which I do think gets overused in the modern world when we are talking about cinema. I mean, I'm probably guilty of it myself. I use the word surreal probably more than I should. But what we have here in Memoria is a genuinely surreal film. I mean, at one point they even name drop Salvador Dali. This is a film very much with 
a limited amount of sense to it. It is very much open to interpretation what is actually going on. Straight from his early career and things like Uncle Boon Me and continuing throughout Apichatpongwirasathagun's career, he makes films about dreams. He makes films about reincarnation. He makes films about the collective unconscious. And that is what Memoria ends up being. There's lots of disjointed stuff in this. Not all of it seems to make sense. Not all of it seems to connect. And all of it done in a very, very slow fashion. The film opens on a, an image. An image which is so abstract, you're not exactly sure what it is. And it's completely silent. And this goes on for quite some time until suddenly we hear this booming thump. To the extent that the woman who was sitting a couple of seats down from me, and even in the tiny, tiny screen in the Odeon, there was like four people in this screening on a Saturday night. But the woman who was sitting a couple of seats down from me almost jumped out of her seat with the sudden intrusion of this very loud booming noise. And then we realise, oh, we've been watching... Tilda Swinton sleeping, but from a, such a strange angle that her head comes up from the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. I mean, it, it's it's a very abstract, very slow, very quiet opening scene, and that's kind of what the entire film is. It's very abstract, it's very quiet, it's very, very slow. And we follow Tilda Swinton as she does various things. I mean, we visit... Tilda Swinton's sister, who is married to a Colombian, in hospital, and they speculate about what the disease is that is afflicting her. I mean, maybe she's being cursed because she didn't do enough to help a stray dog she sent to the vet. There's conversations with her sister's husband that Tilda Swinton has. She spends a very, very long time with this audio engineer trying to recreate exactly what this sound is this is a scene which takes a very very long time to achieve we go minutely through every detail as this audio engineer is trying to recreate this noise in a later scene this same much younger audio engineer is openly flirting with tilda swinton as they go together in order to buy an orchid fridge the only time that orchids ever get mentioned in this film. Randomly, Tilda Swinton gets invited on an archaeological dig. I mean, she is sitting on a bench in this university hospital, and she randomly strikes up a conversation with an anthropology professor. And Tilda Swinton looks through the door and says, what, is that a morgue? And the anthropology professor says, kinda, do you want to see? So Tilda Swinton, with no background in archaeology or anthropology that we know, just starts hanging out in the anthropology department and eventually gets invited to the remote mountains of Columbia on an archaeological dig for no particular reason. At around this time, it is revealed that this young audio engineer has completely disappeared and nobody knows who the hell he is. So what was going on there? And then Tilda Swinton goes into a remote part of the mountains of Colombia and has a long, very metaphysical conversation 
with a man in which he starts talking about memories and how he can't forget anything and how his kind don't dream. Tilda Swinton says, well, can you do this for me? So that's what he does. This man who Tilda Swinton has been having this long, long metaphysical discussion with just lies down and goes to sleep. And we watch him sleeping for quite some time to the extent that he kind of looks dead and is deliberately supposed to look dead. And the dialogue that happens when this guy wakes up as he's just fallen asleep next to this stream in remote Colombia. Tilda Swinton says, I mean, and, and this is almost exactly what the dialogue is. Tilda Swinton says to him, what was it like? He replies, what? Being dead. Oh, it was okay. And that's the conversation. And then they continue having this long conversation about sharing memories and repressed memories. And at about this time, it is revealed what this booming thump has been. And I thought, as this was revealed, oh, come on, really? That's the solution? I am genuinely, genuinely not sure whether I'm supposed to take that revelation literally. If I am, it's absurd. If I'm not supposed to take it literally, what's it doing in the film anyway? Because it's absurd. But as I said, that is what Apichatpong Wirasethakun does. He directs dreams. He directs films about the collective unconscious. Not only does a lot of this stuff not make sense, I don't think it's supposed to make sense. It's supposed to have some underlying truth to it, which, if you're on this film's wavelength, I think you will possibly get something out of, particularly if you're a fan of this kind of slow cinema, which has been mastered by people like the Hungarian Belatar, for example. What we have here is a very, very strange film. It, it does feel like the experience of a dream, with not everything connecting, not everything making sense, but you know, the underlying truth of it can be there for those willing to seek it out. It, it's just very, very strange. And I, I freely admit, the work of Apichatpong Rosathakun is just not for me. I, in general, don't appreciate this kind of slow cinema. I also am not a fan of the way that this film is being distributed in the United States. Apparently, what they are doing is that the film Memoria will only ever be at one cinema at a time. There will never be simultaneous screenings of Memoria in the United States. It will just go on perpetual tour going from one cinema in this city to that city to that city to that city in a perpetual kind of roadshow presentation. And supposedly it will never be available on DVD or streaming. Now, I'm sorry, but for me, that's just unbelievably and unbearably pretentious. Saying that the only way to experience this is a, an individual experience in this one place at this one time, that is the only place in the entire United States that that film will be viewable, is this one place, this one cinema, this one screen, at this one time. 
that's just bullshit as far as I'm concerned. What about the people who can't get to cinemas? What about the people who would embrace this kind of slow cinema, but for varying reasons, I mean, not least of which because we're still in the midst of a pandemic. What about the people who just want to stay home and watch a slow cinema film? It's just bullshit going on this perpetual roadshow format. So, yeah, I'm not appreciative of that either. I mean, that's just far too art house and far too pretentious for me. So, yeah, that's not how it's being done here in the UK. But the fact that that is the plan in the United States kind of pisses me off. So that's another red flag. That's another mark against this film. But really, it didn't need any more flags. I mean. I'm not on this film's wavelength, it's not really for me, but it might well be for you. So if anything that I've talked about in this review sounds interesting to me, then yeah, by all means, go and check out Memoria. If you are interested in it, by the sounds of it, you might well benefit from seeing it in the cinema anyway. I mean, I don't know what the home movie plans are for Memoria on this side of the Atlantic, but regardless... It might be worth going out to the cinema to see it if it at all intrigues you. But for me, personally, I think Memoria is a confusing, strange, surreal, literally surreal, meh. Changing Directions Completely is a film which has been given a cinematic release, but for most people will be more readily available through Sky Cinema. It is the small British film Save the Cinema, which is in that plucky British underdog story vein the same way as Calendar Girls or Brastoff or The Full Monty, that kind of thing. It is directed by Sarah Sugarman, whose last film was another one of these underdog British films, also set in South Wales, Vinyl, based on the remarkable true story of The Alarm, the 1980s rock band who perpetrated a fraud on the British music industry to make a point about ageism in the music industry. The Alarm were a minor success in the early 80s with a couple of top 20 hits. They went on a world tour with U2. They were a reasonably big name, but in the early 80s. In 2004, they wrote a new track and were so frustrated by the fact that, yeah, nobody wants to listen to The Alarm anymore, that they perpetrated a fraud. They got a bunch of teenagers to lip sync to their song in a music video and released the song under this other band's name, making a point about the image-obsessed music industry. So, The Alarm, or rather the band who was lip-syncing to the track that The Alarm did, got into the top 30 in 2004 and made a point about ageism, and this was eventually turned into a movie by Sarah Sugarman, who was assigned to that film vinyl by the American producers of the film, And then Mike Peters of The Alarm says, Oh, I know Sarah. We grew up in real together. She used to date one of my bassists. Hello, Sarah. Do you want to make this film with me? So 
completely randomly, Sarah Sugarman directed a film about somebody she actually knew and an incident she knew about. Vinyl is a charming little film starring Phil Daniels and Keith Allen, and Keith Allen makes a cameo in this film as well. But once again, Save the Cinema is a plucky underdog story, arguably a story about fraud, set in South Wales, in which a Carmarthen hairdresser, played by Samantha Morton, is the life and soul of the lyric cinema. She runs the youth opera in Carmarthen, South Wales. She is the director and the producer of all the productions that the youth opera puts on in the lyric cinema. She's one of those people who, yes, technically she's a hairdresser, but her passion, her life, is the theatre, the amateur theatre, which she is the guiding light of. But in 1993, the Lyric Cinema is under threat of being demolished by the corrupt mayor of Carmarthen, played by Adil Akhtar. So, Samantha Morton makes the extravagant decision to occupy the Lyric Cinema. Her opinion being that if I'm in here, they can't demolish it and make way for this shopping centre, which Adil Akhtar, the mayor, has been paid off to sort out. So Samantha Morton gathers her family and friends around her and starts occupying the Lyric Cinema in order that it will not be demolished. And as part of this campaign, she decides that we need to start showing films in this cinema again. And what's the big film that we can get out in 1993 in Carmarthen in South Wales to make sure that people actually come to the Lyric Cinema and save it from being demolished. Well, there's this new film called Jurassic Park, which is just coming out. Let's see if we can get a screening sorted out of Jurassic Park for the small South Wales town of Carmarthen. And by God, she manages to do it. So on the same night that Jurassic Park had its West End premiere in London, it was also being almost simultaneously shown in Carmarthen, South Wales, in the Lyric Cinema, which survives to this day, and the majority of this film was filmed in the Lyric Cinema. Even the alley behind the Lyric Cinema is apparently accurate. I mean, there's a cameo from the very funny comedian Rod Gilbert as the builder who's been contracted to demolish the Lyric Cinema, and apparently that is genuinely the alley behind the Lyric Cinema that Rod Gilbert is in. I mean, this is the kind of film where it's so strongly connected to this small South Wales town of Carmarthen that the locals have started making comments on IMDb saying, oh, well, you can't go down that street. He's going the wrong way down a one-way street. If you're going from the town hall to the cinema, you don't go that way. I mean, it's so directly connected to Carmarthen that people are making comments about it. And that's kind of what this is. This is a film about a community just as much as it is a film about this strong-willed woman who will not let her beloved theatre die. 
I mean, I think we've all come across people like this. The, the kind of person who, yes, has a job. I mean, she is a hairdresser. But really, she's the theatre person. She's the person who puts all her time, all her energies into the theatre for the benefit of her community. I mean, all, everybody around her says, I mean, she does such a good job. She brings people together. I mean, children who otherwise wouldn't have anywhere to go, have somewhere to go, have somewhere to express themselves. She's an important figure, and she will not let this cinema be demolished. And, yeah, the, the film plays out pretty much exactly how you expect it to. I mean, the local postman slash inexperienced counsellor, played by Tom Felton, gets roped into this whole thing and eventually throws his weight behind this campaign. It starts getting national attention once you know, they actually get a phone call from Steven Spielberg himself when they start actually running films in the build-up to trying to get Jurassic Park. I mean, they show how green was my valley. A very, very idealised, very Americanized version of a Welsh novel. It ignores completely the fact that, as far as modern history is concerned, the only thing that anybody remembers about how green was my valley is that that was the film that beat Citizen Kane to Best Picture, and also, incidentally, Sergeant York and the Maltese Falcon. How Green Was My Valley was the winner that year. The film itself, the film we are watching, Save the Cinema, knows how sentimental this film is. I mean, there's a sequence which is just so sappy, so sentimental, you can't believe it. Yet the film knows it's sappy and sentimental. At a certain point in How Green Was in My Valley, the song Kumronva is played. I mean, better known as Bread of Heaven or Guide Me, O Thy Great Redeemer. And the entire cinema stands up and starts singing Bread of Heaven. And it's so sappy, it's so sentimental, and the film knows how sappy and sentimental it is. It is playing it to the rafters with how sentimental it is. The film is pushing its buttons, it's deliberately pushing your buttons, and it knows it's pushing your buttons with an entire cinema full of Welsh people singing Bread of Heaven. And yeah, it's... Um a little bit much, but it kind of fits in this type of movie. The type of movie where the whole point is being sentimental, the whole point is portraying the plucky underdog small town spirit. I mean, this is the kind of small town in Carmarthen where everybody knows everybody. You know who your postman is, you know who your counsellor is, particularly when they're the same person. It's charming. I mean, I, I'm passingly familiar with Carmarthen. I mean, my family used to have a holiday caravan down in Tenby in South Wales, and Carmarthen was a couple of towns over. So on occasion, I did go to Carmarthen. So I'm passingly familiar with it. I mean, it's been God, a couple of decades probably since I've actually been there. But yeah, I am familiar with this kind of South Wales town, this Pembrokeshire town or actually Carmarthenshire town, really. But 
it's there. And seeing this life portrayed and seeing this underdog story and the astonishing success, I mean, actually managing to get a print of Jurassic Park on the same night that the UK premiere is happening. It's an astonishing story. And over the end credits, there's the usual thing of, you know, here is what happened to the people involved afterwards. And one of the people involved in this story is very, very famous for something completely different. It was astonishing. Hang on, he's the kid in this film? And he was. I mean, it's astonishing the weird connections that sometimes come up in a film like this. So yeah, Save the Cinema is slight. It's sentimental. It's the plucky underdog British movie. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it's a charming little film. It's not trying to be too much more than just being a charming little film. So I do recommend Save the Cinema. And in passing, I also recommend Sarah Sugarman's last movie, Vinyl. I think that's also well worth checking out in the same kind of sentimental underdog British movie way. But in the meantime, Save the Cinema possibly still available at the cinema, but definitely still available through your Skybox on Sky Cinema, is for me a pretty high meh. Home movies. Next Door is a German film which stars and is directed by Daniel Bruhl, making his directorial debut. This comes from a script written by Daniel Kaelman, who is mostly known as a novelist, although he has written scripts in the past, perhaps his biggest impact in the English-speaking world is that Daniel Kaelman wrote the novel on which the haunted house horror movie You Should Have Left was based. It was turned into a film starring Amanda Seyfried and Kevin Bacon quite recently. But Daniel Kelman writes this script and Daniel Brühl directs and stars as a conceited, self-involved actor named Daniel, who is about to head off to London for a gigantic audition for a role in a big superhero franchise. Realising he's got a couple of hours to kill before his flight to London, He goes a couple of blocks from his gentrified, swanky glass apartment in the old East Berlin to a local dive bar to kill a couple of hours. The only people in this dive bar are the owner of the bar, Rika Ackerman, a drunk in the corner played by Goda Benedicts, who just shouts random things to nobody at intermittent intervals, and a blue-collar guy played by Peter Kerr. And over the course of this couple of hours that Daniel Brawl has to kill, he strikes up a conversation with this older blue-collar guy who lives in the same gentrified region of Berlin. And over the course of the film, the conversation 
between Daniel Brühl and Peter Kurth becomes increasingly confrontational, brings up increasingly uncomfortable home truths about Daniel Brühl's personal and professional life, and the consequences of gentrification of this particular region in Berlin. As I always say, I am intrigued when an actor steps behind the camera and decides to direct. So when I saw that this was directed by Daniel Brühl, I was very, very intrigued. I mean, I love the work of Daniel Brühl in things like Rush and The Fifth Wave. Also on television in the Alienist miniseries. I mean, and I, I read the books that the Alienist series is based on, and it's a good adaptation. I mean, it's far too sexualized. It was on a channel which can get away with tits and ass, so there was a lot of tits and ass in The Alienist, despite the fact that it's not really in the books. But regardless, Daniel Brawl was excellent in it. So I like the work of Daniel Brawl. And then I saw it was also premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. So at least some festival programmers thought it was worthy of inclusion in a major festival. I also find it interesting that it played at the Taormina Film Festival in Italy because one of the things that gets brought up in this conversation between Daniel Brawl and Peter Kurth is the Taormina Film Festival. That becomes a plot point, so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, the idea of two people from different social stratas, from different backgrounds, meeting in a dive bar in the middle of the day, just killing a couple of hours, and it's increasingly getting more and more antagonistic. That sounded really, really interesting. And right from the start, it's a very confrontational relationship between Peter Kurth and Daniel Brühl. I mean, Peter Kurth is sat at the bar drinking a beer at sort of like 11 o'clock in the morning and just staring at Daniel Brühl, who's got a couple of hours to kill, so he's just running lines and ordering a, a coffee. And eventually Daniel Brühl sort of notices, all right, do you want a photo? Well, you want to have a chat, whatever. And he says, yeah, I'll, I'll have a, uh, an autograph. And then Peter Kurth says, well, do you have paper? No. Do you have a pen? No. And eventually pen and paper is found. He just gives a, a, an autograph on a napkin, which Peter Kurth then proceeds to wipe his mouth with. So right from the start, this is an antagonistic relationship. I mean, Peter Kurth has his own agenda. He is this blue-collar, former East German guy living in Berlin who resents this rich, privileged actor moving in to this redeveloped, swanky apartment building in the old East Berlin. And the divide between East Germany and West Germany becomes something that is brought up again and again. Now, Daniel Brühl is playing an actor named Daniel, and some of the things in his background that come up during the course of this film are directly based on his own real life. In passing, he mentions something which possibly is a reference to The Alienist, the TV series The Alienist. But 
there's a lengthy discussion about a film that the character in the film Next Door, Daniel, appeared in. And this is clearly supposed to be referencing the film that the real-life actor Daniel Brawl got his big break on, the film Goodbye Lenin, which arguably was Daniel Brawl's big break. It was certainly his big break in the non-German-speaking world. And there's a lengthy discussion about a film which is clearly supposed to be based on Goodbye Lenin. Now, the details are different. I mean, for good reasons, the name of the director is wrong, and they never outright say Goodbye Lenin, but it's clear that's what they're talking about. Because this former East German guy, Peter Kerr, is very, very resentful of this film from 2003, because the plot of Goodbye Lenin is a young man, played by Daniel Brühl, has to hide from his mother, who has recently come out of a coma, the fact that the Berlin Wall has fallen. So this young man is desperate to try and maintain the fiction that they are still living in East Berlin, in East Germany. And that is something which is brought up in the film Next Door, I mean, never by name. But this old East German guy, Peter Kurth, is essentially complaining about Westwashing of this story. He's talking about how nobody who worked on that film was from the old East Germany. It was all Western people, including Daniel Brawl, who's from Cologne and half Spanish. Peter Kurth is very angry about the portrayal of East Germany. And that is something which is brought up again and again. And the fact that this redeveloped, gentrified building that Daniel Brawl and his wife and his children live in is in the old East Germany is something which becomes more and more relevant as the film goes along. And while there are clear parallels between the character in the film and the real-life actor Daniel Brawl, particularly talking about this film, which is clearly supposed to be good by Lenin, there's a lot of stuff which clearly isn't true. I mean, there's repeated talk about a TV series that the character is doing with Wes Anderson, which isn't true. There's talk about this superhero franchise, which is on his way to an audition for Dark Man, which probably doesn't have any connection to the Sam Raimi, Liam Neeson film. I'm guessing it's just we need a superhero franchise, let's have a somewhat plausible character name. So there's stuff in here which is definitely not true, and that includes the personality of the character on screen, Daniel. This is such a self-absorbed, such a conceited guy. He is very, very keen. I mean, he loves the fact that a couple of teenage girls walk past, see him through the window, and instantly come into this dive bar and say, hey, can we get a selfie? He he preens, he's very happy about that. He clearly thinks he is the most important person in the room, in the world even, to the point of solipsism. I mean, he is so self-involved, so conceited. I can't help feeling that there's a little bit of self-loathing in the person, Daniel Brawl. I mean, 
very concerned that he's only a couple of steps away from the very, very self-involved character he's playing in this film. But the ego of the actor being the most important person in the room, telling his truths, acting in his films, and being a champion of serious cinema. I mean, yes, he's on his way to an audition for a very cheesy superhero franchise, but he's an actor, damn it. And coming into this deprived area of East Berlin and gentrifying it and living with his wife and his children and his nanny. And I mean, the opening scenes of this film are Daniel Brawl getting up and living a very regimented, very ordered life. And that doesn't necessarily include his wife or his children. I mean, the nanny is desperately trying to keep his kids out of his eyeline as he's getting ready to leave. He doesn't really have a conversation with his wife. He's just, you know, oh no, you just stay there. I, I, I need to prepare for my audition. I need to run my lines before I head off to the airport. His wife and his children don't necessarily exist until he wants them to be there. Otherwise, out of sight, out of mind. And this becomes an increasingly relevant plot point in the conversations between Peter Kurth and Daniel Broad. I mean, it becomes more and more apparent over the course of the film that Peter Kurth not only has his own agenda, but has the means and the will to do something about it, to take a stand against this, well, what he sees as a malign influence on his neighbourhood. I mean, it's very, very apparent that Daniel Brühl has only gone a couple of blocks from his you know, glass and steel apartment built on top of an old apartment block in East Berlin. But even in those couple of blocks he's travelled, this is no longer his world. This is a very blue-collar, very working-class kind of bar with a sullen barmaid-slash-owner and day drinkers. You know, this blue-collar guy, Peter Kurth, and this drunk in the corner who just randomly shouts stuff occasionally. This is not his world anymore. This is not something he is ever part of, despite the fact he claims, oh yes, this is my local, I'm in here all the time. He clearly isn't, and it becomes more and more apparent just how much of a liar he is. I mean, perhaps he's even lying to himself. I mean, he, he thinks he wants to be part of, you know, this is my community, I've moved into this rundown area of East Berlin, and, and I will bring it up with me. And do the people that actually want to be brought up to this gentrified state? I mean, that is one of the major themes of this, is gentrification. And also, the differences between the romanticised version of East Berlin, of East Germany, and the modern view that we have now of this bohemian cosmopolitan city, which Daniel Brawl thinks he's a part of, but actually kind of isn't. And the personality of Daniel Brühl is brought to the fore. I mean, even towards the end of the film, when big lines have been crossed and we're not really on Peter Kurth's side anymore, Peter Kurth makes a somewhat conciliatory statement, a somewhat respectful statement, having you know 
basically been character assassinating Daniel Brawl for the last half hour at least. But even in this tiny moment of connection, of empathy from Peter Kurth, Daniel Brawl is such an egomaniac, he cannot allow himself to even take that small step towards conciliation. And then there's a moment where an overly emotional conversation is being had and Daniel Brawl looks like he's about to cry, looks like he's on the verge of tears. And somebody says, oh, stop doing that. That's not going to work in this situation. And he instantly stops. I mean, he's an actor and he's always an actor. He thought, if I cry now, it might help my situation. So I'm going to cry until somebody calls him out on it and he stops. I mean, this is such a self-absorbed, such a conceited character that the presence of an actor in this situation is not necessary. And exploring that and examining that, I think, is very well done. I did like this film. I think... It could have gone a little bit further, either in the direction of the Kafkaesque nightmare. I mean, this guy has clearly got an agenda. He has all this information about me. What am I going to do with it? Either that, or you could have gone, you know, the really, really dark route. I mean, this guy is a stalker. He's dangerous. How the hell am I going to get out of this? Am I even going to survive this? You could have taken that extra step, that extra level in either of those two directions, but they don't. I mean, there is a back and forth, you know, the the working class old East German guy and this conceited West German actor meeting in this dive bar in 2020. And there are conversations had about gentrification, about the Berlin Wall and what it meant when it came down, what it meant to the people who lived behind the Berlin Wall. There are those conversations had, but that's kind of all they have. I mean, yet there's stuff about Daniel Brawl's personal life, about his marriage. There's also stuff about Peter Kurth's marriage, although it's never confirmed if what he's saying is true. But I think we're supposed to believe that he's setting some level of truth in that. So. Yeah, all these things get brought up, and they are interesting to consider, but I'm not sure enough is done with it. So this idea of a vindictive, blue-collar, East German having a confrontational conversation with this conceited West German actor in a dive bar is a good idea, and on those terms I think it works. But they could have pushed it further and maybe should have pushed it further. But either way, I think Next Door is an excellent little film. It's essentially a two-people-talking film. The overwhelming majority of this film is just Daniel Brawl and Peter Kurth talking in this dive bar. So that's something that always appeals to me. And on those terms, I think it's good. So for me, Next Door, available on streaming platforms, is a very high math. And then we come to the documentary The First Wave, which I was not looking forward to. 
it ended up on the 15 film long list for documentary feature Oscar at the forthcoming ceremony. So I thought, okay, I, I better seek it out. And then realized, oh, it's already come out in the UK on the National Geographic channel, which is nowadays part of the Disney Plus streaming service. So I had opportunity to watch it and it is eligible to be reviewed in this podcast. It is directed by Matthew Heinemann, the very well-regarded documentarian who was Oscar-nominated for the viscerally impactful film Cartel Land. He also directed the excellent documentary City of Ghosts, and now has turned his attention to a hospital in New York during the four months of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. As the pandemic starts, Matthew Heinemann starts filming in the Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, New York, following various nurses, various doctors, and various patients as they are dealing with COVID and the horrors and the daily struggle to keep everything together, to keep everybody alive, to keep everybody sane. And by God, is it a struggle. This is the kind of documentary that is important, and it is important that it exists, but to actually seek out this kind of film isn't always for me, the most logical thing. I mean, I've already seen the documentary from last year, 127 Days, which was a similar situation. It was the first wave of the pandemic in Wuhan, China. And that was, you know, smuggled out of China. I mean, certain bits of that were shot anonymously because the directors might well get in trouble with the Chinese government if they were attached to that particular documentary. And 127 days was absolutely harrowing. And seeing these overwhelmed, I mean, completely overwhelmed medical professionals in Wuhan, China, struggling to deal with this unprecedented medical catastrophe. And having the same thing in America from the American perspective, albeit with a great documentarian like Matthew Heinemann behind the camera. It wasn't something I was necessarily eager to put myself through. We are spending time with a doctor, a nurse, and a couple of patients are are the main people we are following. And I think it's very, very significant and almost certainly deliberate that only one of the major people we are following is white. The nurse we are spending time with is white, the doctor is a black woman, and the two patients are a black man and a Filipino woman, who, perhaps not insignificantly, is also a nurse at this same hospital we are filming in. And as she was diagnosed with COVID-19, she had to be given an emergency C-section for her second child. So this is a Filipino immigrant nurse who has just given birth to her second child, 
her husband and her sister who lives with her are also nurses. And these are the people who are being most affected by the pandemic. I mean, that cannot be an accident. It cannot be a mistake that we are so closely following minority people in this situation. And then, of course, a couple of months into the pandemic, George Floyd gets murdered. So that becomes part of the story as well. And we know what we are getting into right from the start of this film. The opening scenes of this film is somebody repeatedly crashing and being surrounded by masked and gowned people, all wearing PPE, all trying to save this person as time and time again they crash. And I mean, that's how the film opens. I mean, it pulls no punches. It is not trying to pull any punches. It is saying, we are here. This is what it is like. This is what it's going to be for the next 90 minutes. And we are going to follow this moment by grim moment, story by grim story. And personally speaking, I was just assuming that not everybody we were following through the course of this film would survive. I was sure, oh, people are going to die. People we have grown to know, grown to respect, grown to like, they're going to die, aren't they? That's just the way things go. And, you know, the simple little things, I mean, the emotional toll it takes for, you know, the uh, probably candy stripers, I mean, it's never specifically said, but they don't seem to be actual nurses, but they're on the floor and their job is to hold up iPads to people and try and connect people with their families. And that takes an emotional toll on the people holding the iPads, particularly when you know things you don't necessarily consider start coming up. Like when an iPad starts running out of charge, it's not always possible to charge them because people don't want to share their chargers and potentially get cross-contaminated. So not only is it emotionally draining to do this over and over again, have you know these potentially dying people talking to people on their iPads, talking to their families on their iPads. It's also a case of, can we actually keep these iPads going? And it takes a toll. Everything takes a toll. I mean, the fact that, I mean, this newborn baby, this Filipino nurse who had COVID and had an emergency C-section, the first time her husband sees this baby in the flesh, it is through the closed window of a car. The mother's cousin have taken the baby in because you know there's COVID in the house. So the cousin has the baby, the newborn baby, in the car, and the father of this baby has to look at this newborn baby through a closed car window. And it's just harrowing. It is terrifying seeing this over and over again. And seeing these professionals trying their best and not always succeeding. I mean, it's overwhelming. And seeing people get overwhelmed over and over and over again, it does take a toll on both the people doing it and on the people watching it. And I mean, Matthew Heineman has always been a very confrontational, a very in-your-face director. I did really, really like Cartel Land. I do think it was worthy of its Oscar nomination. And one of the reasons why I liked it is that Matthew Heinemann documented the 
Mexican-American border drug war from within. I mean, it was one of those situations where I was genuinely concerned about the camera people, about the directors, about the filmmakers in these situations. They were surrounded by people with guns and people firing guns. It is not too far a stretch to say that Matthew Heineman and his camera people who worked on Cartel Land really did put their lives in danger for the sake of that film. And a slightly similar situation in City of Ghosts, which documented a series of citizen journalists in the Syrian city of Raqqa as it was taken over by ISIS. And people in Raqqa started filming ISIS and what they were doing and trying to spread it to the world and eventually having to flee for their lives to places like Germany and Sweden and the States. And Matthew Heinemann was following them. And these are people who have to stay in hiding because. ISIS wants to kill them. So Matthew Heinemann documenting that also arguably put his life in danger. And the final shot of the documentary City of Ghosts is one of the most powerful and harrowing final shots of documentary I've ever, ever seen. And documenting the toll that this kind of thing takes. I mean, this is what Matthew Heinemann does. He puts himself in incredibly emotionally charged situations incredibly dangerous situations and documents it and that's what he did with the first wave i mean this is not being surrounded by people wielding ak-47s this is being surrounded by people wielding covid you know if i stay here there's a decent chance i'm going to be infected and does matthew heinemann have a death wish possibly he does but he's an excellent documentarian and as a piece of filmmaking i think the first wave is excellent i think what matthew heinemann managed to do telling these stories telling these harrowing stories in a very personal very intimate way and showing the toll it takes on the caregivers and the patients it's powerful, powerful stuff. And as a piece of filmmaking, I think it's excellent. I mean, I think there's a decent chance that I personally will consider this one of the best documentaries of the year, and it will be one of my personal list of nominees for documentary feature. I think there's a decent chance it will get an actual nomination, but quite honestly, at this stage, I'll be astonished if anything beats the animated documentary flea which is out legally here in the uk in a couple of months but i saw at the film bath festival and i genuinely think that flea is going to get an unprecedented triple crown i think flea is going to get nominated for best animated feature for best documentary feature and for best international feature i think that is definitely on the cards and it should be on the cards for all of those categories but you know more on flea later or you can go back to my film bath festival special and listen about it but yeah it's not going to win best documentary feature in my mind but i think it's worthy of a nomination i think it is harrowing it is troubling but it's an excellent piece of filmmaking and it is a story that needs to be told so for me the first wave is not something i ever want to put myself through again but it is available on the national geographic channel and for me it is a very very high math Netflix and chill. The Starling is a Netflix film directed by Theodore Melfi. 
whose directorial feature-length debut was the rather good Saint Vincent, a film starring a crusty Bill Murray who gets a new lease on life when he is reluctantly forced to be a babysitter for his neighbour's kid, a neighbour played by Melissa McCarthy. And I think it's also worth pointing out that Chris O'Dowd is in St. Vincent as well. Theodore Melfi then followed up St. Vincent with the excellent Hidden Figures, for which he got nominated for two Oscars for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. I really did like Hidden Figures. I mean, it was pushing all the Oscar Beatty type buttons, being about the untold story of black female heroes from history, but it was still a good film. And now Theodore Melfi has come back with this film, The Starling, which is written by Matt Harris and has been on the so-called blacklist for close to a decade. Now, The Blacklist is a Hollywood thing where the best unproduced scripts floating around Hollywood, you know, in development hell, are on the blacklist. And, yeah, the blacklist is not always a good mark of quality because films which have notoriously been on the blacklist, more often than not, when they actually get made and come out, they're not very good. And, as I said, this film has been on the blacklist since 2007. And the responses to the completed film, The Starling, have not been positive. This has been getting absolutely crushed by the critics, which I don't necessarily think is justified, but we'll be getting onto my feelings in a minute. But before I do that, I need to go through the plot of The Starling. A married couple, Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd, are dealing with the grief of their baby daughter dying of cot death, of SIDS. Melissa McCarthy is going through the motions, going to her job at a bargain supermarket, being the deputy to the incredibly insensitive manager played by Timothy Oliphant. But Chris O'Dowd dealt with the death of his daughter so badly that he's actually been institutionalised. And every week, Melissa McCarthy has to make a two-hour round trip to this mental health facility in order to spend time with her husband. But her husband is not only not dealing with the death of his daughter very well, he's also not dealing with the mental health facility very well either. He's not engaging with his wife. He's not engaging with the treatments he is receiving. He's not engaging with the staff of this mental health facility. He's just going through the motions. Melissa McCarthy is starting to get ground down by this. You're constantly going to her husband, who is not engaging with the process of grief at all. So in desperation, she follows the advice of one of the people who works at this mental health facility and calls on an old therapist friend of this staff member at the mental hospital, 
played by Kevin Klein. And Melissa McCarthy goes to Kevin Klein and discovers that while Kevin Klein did used to be a therapist, now he's a vat. So Melissa McCarthy starts going to this vat despite the fact she doesn't have a pat and essentially getting free therapy from this ex-psychologist who is now a vet. And while all this is going on, in her day-to-day life, she is being tormented by a starling who has built a nest in Melissa McCarthy's garden And whenever Melissa McCarthy goes out to do some gardening or whatever, she is constantly getting attacked by this starling who is trying to protect his nest. So can Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd deal with their grief? Will Kevin Klein help them? And will this aggressive starling be put in its place? I do kind of understand why The Starling has been getting such negative reviews. I mean, this is one of those films that is absolutely drowning in sentimentality and melodrama. The ideas this film has about the grieving process, about the ways to get through the grieving process, are not helpful, they're not especially accurate. The mental health facility that Chris O'Dowd is in, on several different levels, it seems to be very, very poorly run. Throughout the course of the film, Chris O'Dowd is allowed to get away with stuff, which if the members of staff at this mental health facility were competent at all, he would not be able to get away with. He would not be able to be so disengaged from the healing process. I mean, it's a repeated gag that when Chris O'Dowd is talking to the head of this mental health facility, Ravi Kapoor, Ravi Kapoor says, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Are you healing? Yes, I am. And that's all that ever happens. And this becomes a running theme. And really, is that all you're going to do? The fact that David Diggs plays one of the nurses or the orderlies in this mental health facility and is barely in the film at all, it's a total, total waste of a very talented actor in David Diggs. There's no reason why a recognisable name should be in such a small role. I mean, to be fair, maybe it was a larger role that was cut down in the edit, but even so, David Diggs being barely in this film seems a little inappropriate and to a lesser degree also Rosalind Chow who plays Kevin Klein's veterinarian nurse. I mean Rosalind Chow is not such a big name but she's certainly a recognisable face and she too has a very very small role in this film. And the ways that Kevin Klein and Melissa McCarthy starts you know having these sessions, I mean these impromptu sessions, despite the fact that Melissa McCarthy doesn't have her pet. Kevin Klein saying, you know, I don't do that anymore. I I left my past as this respected psychologist behind. I I do like the fact that we never told specifically why Kevin Klein left the psychological profession, but there's enough hints here and there that, you know, something bad happened and now he's run away and become a vet. Uh, And the conversations that Kevin Klein and Melissa McCarthy have, I mean, I guess they might well be helpful, but 
the results, the success that these impromptu sessions have feels a little bit too convenient. And also the progress that Chris O'Dowd eventually makes. Allowing for the fact that, as I said, he has no interest in engaging with the mental health healing process at all. He is completely disengaged from the hospital, completely disengaged from the wife. Yet by the end of the film, he's basically okay. So what are we trying to say here? That if you just pluck away through it and if your wife shouts at you a little bit, you will get over your clearly suicidal tendencies and basically be okay. I mean, what kind of message are we trying to say here? And I'm not really sure that Theodore Melfi knows what message he is trying to send. From my perspective, each of the individual performances in this film, from Melissa McCarthy, from Chris O'Dowd, and from Kevin Klein, are all good, are all worthwhile, or perhaps more accurately, individual moments in each of these three individual performances are all very, very good. But they do kind of feel like they're all coming from slightly different films. The tonal shifts, the approaches that this film has to its thorny subject matter is occasionally not helpful. And I think Theodore Melfi allowed each of his leading casts to be in slightly different films. It's an old saw I've heard that one of the main jobs of a director, whether in the theatre or on film, is to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Everybody is making the same film. And I don't think Theodore Melfi did that. I think the tonal shifts, the approaches that the main characters have are all subtly different enough that it doesn't quite fit. And the sort of main plot, if you want to call it that, of the battle of wills between Melissa McCarthy and this Starling is an issue. I think it's an issue. I don't believe that this Starling has such an aggressive attitude that no matter what Melissa McCarthy does, this Starling will attack her. Uh, and the things that you know, Melissa McCarthy confronting this Starling, you know, dealing with this Starling because she can't deal with the death of her baby daughter, I guess I can see that. But constantly being a presence, knowing that whenever you leave the house, you will be attacked by this Starling. It's a silly conceit in what is mostly a relatively serious film. I mean, or at least attempting to be something relatively serious. I'm going to make an observation now, which I think is probably coming a bit from left field, and I might well be the only person who is going to say this. But I actually think the Starling would have worked better as an anime. I think the overwrought melodrama, the heightened reality, the conceit that this Starling is always going to attack this grieving mother, it would work better in an anime. That kind of thing tends to go on in Japanese animation. It tends to have a much more melodramatic bent, a somewhat silly bent. I mean, the tonal shifts in certain anime is 
very noticeable, yet they do on occasion approach some very, very serious subject matters like Ride Your Wave or A Silent Voice. These are animes which, yes, have somewhat silly approaches, but in the end do address some very, very harsh subject matters. And honestly, I think that's what the Starling needed. I think the Starling would have worked better as an anime. That is an odd observation to make, but that's the perspective I have on this film. This is brought even more into focus by the fact that this Starling, as is so often the case in the modern era, the Starling is a completely CGI creation. This is a computer-generated Starling who is interacting with Melissa McCarthy. And as I have sometimes said on this podcast, that's all well and good. It is possible to have scarily accurate and scarily believable CGI creations in movies as long as you've got the budget for it. And Theodore Melfi and the Starling did not have the budget. This Starling falls directly into the uncanny valley. It just doesn't look right. It is always, always a computer-generated thing on the screen, interacting with the real-life Melissa McCarthy and eventually Kevin Klein as well. So what are we doing here? When the only way you can accurately make this film is to have this not-believable-in-the-slightest computer-generated bird as one of the major characters in your film, what are we doing here? And yeah, it, this isn't terrible. I mean, I don't think it's sort of like a one-star movie or anything. It's just very silly in places, overly sentimental in places, has a very, very skewed opinion on mental health facilities, on mental health recovery. The ideas it presents aren't always helpful in those regards. But it does have individual moments of acting which are very good. It just never comes together as a complete film. So, yeah, I watched this film because it is mildly oscar Basey. I mean, it's one of those films that when it was announced, when it turned up on the slate, you know, people said, oh, that might well be an Oscar contender, let's put it on the gold derby list. But then when people saw it, they thought, ooh, maybe not. And yeah, it is the type of movie which sometimes gets on Oscar lists, but this particular example doesn't work all the way. But it has one or two nice moments, one or two nice characters, so I don't think it's a complete wash. It's just not a particularly passionate recommendation either way. So for me, The Starling, available on Netflix, is a middle-of-the-road uninspired meh coming attractions after a light week at the cinema this week next week it gets a little bit more busy with three or four films released cinematically which i'm interested in watching and a couple of streaming films as well So it's just as well that I've already seen Kenneth Branagh's Belfast at that preview screening last week. And I will just say again that Belfast is an exceptional film. I really, really loved it. I would not be at all surprised if it's one of my top 10 films 
of 2022, and that's the fifth film I saw at the cinema this year. I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, and a full review of it will be in the next episode. Alongside another film from a heavyweight Hollywood director, Guillermo del Toro's new film Nightmare Alley is out at the cinema this week as well. Based on a gothic novel, as so many of Guillermo del Toro's films are, it seems to star Bradley Cooper as a mysterious carny who teams up with a psychiatrist to cause havoc in 1920s, I think, Midwest. So, yeah, a historical drama slash gothic slash, I think, judging by the trailer, possibly even a monster movie. All the things that Kim Toro is most interested in. But yes, that's out the cinema next week, and I'm very, very interested in that. We also have a film called A Journal for Jordan, which confusingly stars Michael B. Jordan and is apparently based on a true story of a young soldier who starts writing a journal full of advice and philosophy for his unborn son. And knowing what I know about the types of films that Hollywood tends to make, I'm guessing that Michael B. Jordan doesn't come back from Afghanistan. Otherwise, why would they have published the book that this is based on? But yeah, it could well be sentimental claptrap, but it does star Michael B. Jordan, who I really, really like. And it's also directed by Denzel Washington. And this seems a very, very strange film for Denzel Washington to be the director of. So I'm curious about A Journal for Jordan, even if I can't fully say I am looking forward to it. I'm still intrigued enough that I will be checking out A Journal for Jordan at the cinema. Also released at the cinema, but also available through Sky Cinema, and therefore I'll be watching it at home, is a low-key film called Mass. Now this is a very award-baity type film. It's already done the festival circuit to great acclaim in the United States. And yet it has ended up on Sky Cinema. I mean, this occasionally happens that a big prestige picture like this ends up on the Sky Cinema channel. I mean, it happened last year with Promising Young Woman and Judas and the Black Messiah. And this year, Sky Cinema have got their hands on Mass, which is written and directed by Fran Krantz, a slightly odd person to have done this. He's mainly known as an actor, appearing in Joss Whedon projects like Dollhouse and Cabin in the Woods. But now he has written and directed this four-handed film, in which two couples... Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton and Reed Birney and Anne Dowd meet up together and discuss a mutual tragedy in their past. A school shooting at which one of their children was a victim and one of their children was a perpetrator. And some years later, these two grieving pairs of parents sit down together and talk about this incident in their past and yeah that could be very heavy going but it does sound fascinating and since i can watch it at home on my 
Skybox. I will be checking out Mass. And released next week onto Amazon Prime Video is another heavyweight prestige picture. The latest film from multi-Oscar-winning Iranian director Asghar Fahadi. His latest film, A Hero, has ended up on Amazon Prime Video, so I have easy access to it, and yeah, it's becoming increasingly common for increasingly prestigious pictures to end up on streaming platforms, but yes, Asghar Fahadi's latest film is going to be on Amazon Prime Video, and I do want to check it out, as a man gets a day release from jail as he is basically in debtor's prison. I mean, and apparently debtor's prison still exists in Iran. And he has a short window of time in order to try and persuade the person he owes money to to essentially drop the case. But as is so often the case with Asghar Fahadi films, it becomes a moral grey area and ethical quandaries abound. Or at least that seems to be what it is. I mean, Asghar Fahadi has a very particular thing he does very well. Asghar Fahadi is always all about the moral grey area, and I am very much looking forward to the latest Asghar Fahadi film, because in general, I like his material. And on Netflix, it's not a particularly busy week either. There's one Netflix film that I'm interested in, Munich, The Edge of War which is based on a Robert Harris novel and is a fictionalised account of the lead-up to the Second World War, in which low-level British and German diplomats try and work behind the scenes to try and prevent the Second World War from happening and try and prevent the catastrophic mistakes that Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, as played by Jeremy Irons in this film, is just about to make in trusting the word of Adolf Hitler. So, yes, lots of backroom, low-key spy craft stuff based on a Robert Harris novel, so that looks pretty cool as well, and I do want to check out Munich, The Edge of War. I'm more or less caught up with the Oscar Beatty stuff which has already been released, but there's still a handful of films I do want to check out from the end of last year before I fully commit myself to my end-of-year shows. On streaming platforms, I do want to check out the low-key American indie drama about rape, What She Said. Also, the intriguing two-handed film, The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. I am kind of fascinated by the screwball crime comedy Queen Pins. And I'm also desperately hoping that the film Nine Days becomes readily available. Technically, it got a cinematic release at the end of December, but nowhere near me. And I really do want to check that out because it sounds absolutely fascinating. You know, a metaphysical story about souls making case for why they should be born. So yeah, I do want to check out Nine Days and hopefully include it in my deliberations for my end-of-year shows, but at present it doesn't look like it's getting a proper streaming release. 
On Netflix, I am still determined to check out the two spooky films that released around Halloween, Night Books and Night Teeth. The Teen Weepy mixtape is also somewhat intriguing. But mostly, I think, I'm most eager to check out the two films on Netflix which have been released this year. The Indonesian film Photocopier about a young woman trying to investigate a night at a party she can no longer remember. And also the anthology stop-motion animated film The House, with a series of award-winning stop-motion animators making a film or making a series of films about the same house in very dark and disturbing ways. So that looks absolutely fascinating. So. Yes, still quite a few things to check out on Netflix, quite a few things to check out on streaming, but a lot of stuff coming out at the cinema this week. So lots of stuff to get to, and that's not even including the fact that I really, really need to start recording my end-of-year shows, and I still have the labour-intensive extra project which I'm working my way through. I think the first stage of preparation for that is now complete and I need to start putting stuff together in order to provide my audience with another vehicle for my opinions and creativity. But yeah, that's somewhat on the back burner as well. So lots and lots of stuff to get to. And for this week, for this episode, I think that's all I've got for you. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omar presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>